Justice, to me, highlights that this is political. The struggle that women feel these days is deeply political in nature, and it's not individual. And again, this highlights the reality that, that working mothers and their work-family conflict and the stress they feel as a result is not of their making, and that means it cannot be of their fixing. And the goal of balance suggests they should just try a little bit harder. And in fact, if the problem is political in nature, the roots of it are deeply rooted to me in politics, that means the solutions also need to be political in nature as well. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uheretsky. And today my special guest is Caitlin Collins, Katie. Hi, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so absolutely thrilled that you have accepted uh, to join me on this podcast. And I'm actually holding your book in my hand. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. It's, it's very thick and heavy. And it's called Making Motherhood Work. How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving, and it's by Princeton University Press. So we're going to be speaking about this in just a moment. Let me introduce Katie uh, for the listeners. Um, we actually met at the 2016 uh, Work and Family Researchers Network Conference in Washington, D.C., and I remember speaking about your book and about this project of yours. And you are currently an assistant professor of sociology at the Washington University in St. Louis. And your research focuses on the production and the consequences of social inequality, especially looking at work-life conflict. And so you have uh, created quite the media buzz uh, with this book of yours. But before we go there, may I ask you, Katie, to tell listeners a little bit about yourself uh, your passion and and how you know this idea for this research came about and then led you to writing the book. Happily, yeah, it's a, it's an honor to share with you, Agnes, and with your listeners. Let's see what to tell you. I am. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I got my PhD in sociology at the University of Texas at Austin in 2016, and this book came about because. I grew up with a working mom here in the U.S. who was really stressed um, as a woman who had career ambitions, who was great at her work, and who also loved being a mom. Um, and I watched her struggle as I was growing up a lot. And she and my dad got divorced when I was eight, and she uh, continued her, her kind of high-powered job in corporate sales and marketing for a number of years. And then she decided she'd had enough, and she quit. And she took a job in consulting that was part-time, that had no benefits whatsoever, um, that paid far, far less, but was way more flexible, um, and then gave her the ability to be the kind of mom she said she wanted to be for us. And I remember thinking as a kid, there's got to be a better way to do this so that moms like mine don't have to give up their ambitions in order to be the kind of parents they want. To me, that felt deeply unjust. And, um, 
the running joke in my household is that my mom has always called me the fairness monitor, um, running around mm-hmm. trying to say that's not fair what, and what is fair. And um, now the running joke is that I have gone about um, creating a career where my job is to do something very similar in the study of gender inequality in the workplace and in family life. And um, professionally, I was very inspired by uh, sociologist Pamela Stone's book that was published in 2007 called Opting Out. And it basically is a book that describes exactly what happened to my own mom, that she says, if you ask her, that she opted out, that she chose to leave her ambitious career trajectory and to be the kind of mom she wanted to be for us. Um, but Pamela Stone interviews a, a bunch of women, very like my mom, kind of professional, middle-class, primarily white women, who say that this is their own choice, but Pamela Stone demonstrates so powerfully that these women are in fact forced out of the workplace as a result of inflexible policies and outdated cultural ideals about gender and work and family that privilege men and disadvantage women. Um, And I became really interested in this discourse of opting out. Do women everywhere say it was their choice to leave work? Um, to take care of their kids? Do we hear this sort of rhetoric operating everywhere? And so that led me to pursue this cross-national study to understand the experiences of working moms in different countries that have wildly different work-family policy provisions and different cultural attitudes about gender and employment and and motherhood. And um, to me, the cross-national comparison really allows women's perspectives to be front and center in the conversation about what they want um, to be improved in their work and family lives and the role that work family policy can play in helping support them both in the workplace and also at home. Absolutely. And um, so you you went about and you immersed yourself in five countries um, and you basically lived there uh, while you were interviewing uh, 135 working mothers. And as you describe in the book, you also spoke to their neighbors, their friends, people who just showed up at the playgrounds to basically craft this really interesting book where the beginning is, as you call the first chapter, is an SOS, is a kind of a a cry for for justice, and and you do refer to work-life justice, and then taking you through the the interviews and, and the stories of the women in the different countries. And, and one of the first things that really struck me was that you, you make this um, plea to, to go and, and call, you know, not refer to work-life balance, not work-life integration, work-life blend, all these different terms, but, but to call <laughs> it work-life justice, which I haven't heard before yes. and which sounds really powerful and, and really conveys this sense of urgency. So... Tell us a little bit about this this notion of 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 justice and 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 why you think this is something that um, resonates or should resonate much more. Well, thank you for your kind words about it. Um, yeah, the term work life balance is of course something that you know researchers have struggled with for a long time. It's, I'm certainly not the first person to bring up the kind of limitations of this framework of balance. Um, but if you think just on a fundamental level about that phrase balance, um, it suggests that the difficulties that women have managing both their jobs and and their caregiving responsibilities is individual in nature. If you just balanced a little bit better, things would be better for you. And that to me suggests that when women struggle, 
it's their own fault if they don't balance a little bit better. So I think of a mom, for example, standing on a, a seesaw or a teeter totter, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, well, if you just stood on there a little bit better, your life wouldn't feel so hectic or stressful or overwhelming. Um, and that completely negates the possibility of attending to the structural and social and political reasons why women have a difficult time balancing their work and family responsibilities. And we know that the context matters a lot. So um, in a previous iteration of the book, I had this kind of visual <laughs> that I ended up cutting, but was about, you know, vis- visualize a woman standing on a seesaw and some women are standing there on solid ground with, you know, sturdy ground underneath their feet in great weather. Other women are doing that and they're like, you know, in a sea churning water with high winds, someone trying to shove them off, right? And we have to pay attention to to that broader context in which women are trying to do this balance. And to me, the phrase justice way more adequately captures that larger context, right? It's easier for women to kind of justly balance their work and family lives in places that have more robust and progressive and gender egalitarian work family policy supports. And when culturally speaking, we understand, for example, that breadwinning and caregiving are both men's and women's responsibilities and that employers and the government have a responsibility to help support them in that endeavor. And justice to me highlights that this is political. The struggle that women feel these days is deeply political in nature and it's not individual. And again, this highlights the reality that that working mothers and their work family conflict and the stress they feel as a result is not of their making. And that means it cannot be of their fixing. And the goal of balance suggests they should just try a little bit harder. And in fact, if the problem is political in nature, the roots of it are deeply rooted to me in politics. That means the solutions also need to be political in nature as well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And and this is also what we see uh, even within organizations that yep. uh, women, but also men, uh, mm-hmm. struggle. And in in quite a lot of countries so far, the answer, I mean, there is, I think, a great progress in pockets of creating, you know, these family-friendly workplaces. But in quite a lot of places, it's still you make it or break it. So you either adjust or you're, you have to leave. And, and I think one of the worst things that I see is when employers um, then offer individual coaching to employees, you know, and, yes. and then expect them to come back from their burnout again, into this really dysfunctional uh, place, which, which doesn't allow them any flexibility or doesn't offer any services. So it's, it's again, the fixing of the employee for them to come back and, and, and be molded back into this ideal worker uh, uh, workplace. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the solutions that are proposed these days and that are being adopted in, you know, even the most progressive workplaces and organizations are deeply individual in nature, right? Um, and I guess that is helpful. It's it's maybe necessary but insufficient yes. in terms of re- resolving these conflicts. Like, great to give workers better skills, more negotiating tactics to use to get raises or more flexible schedules or whatever, but, like, that doesn't change the structure of the workplace that tends to advantage those with no external responsibilities and disadvantage people who have caregiving responsibilities, which in many Western industrialized countries tends to be women more than men. In, in your uh, interviews, 
I, I know that, for example, in some of the Italian interviews, the women say, I know that pe women in Germany have it better. Or, but how much did you find that women believe that what they were experiencing was the norm? You know, that this is just how it is and I have to make an effort or I'm just have to suffer through this or leave the work. How, how much are, do you think are they confined in, in their current situation without maybe knowing that there is a, another way and that is the responsibility of government to do something about it? I think that American moms were far more likely to use this very sort of inevitable framework to talk about how stressful their lives were, that work-family conflict was just really unfortunate. It was very difficult for them day to day, but it's just what it's like. It's what it's like to be a contemporary working parent in the 21st century. And, you know, I would ask women in the U.S. towards the end of our interviews um, what they thought the role of the government might be in supporting their work and family responsibilities. And women looked at me like completely blankly, like this had never occurred to them before. They never stopped to think about what might happen on a federal or societal level to help because we don't think of the goal the government as having a role to play in helping us with basically anything in the US mm -hmm. and in Europe it wasn't the same across uh, Germany and Sweden and Italy but all the women did have the ability and on their own unprompted brought up external sources of stress that made it difficult for them to manage caregiving and, uh, and employment. So, you know, women in Germany and Sweden would often say, yeah, the, the cultural expectations for moms are way too high. I'm supposed to make home-baked bread and home-baked cookies to bring to kindergarten. And I'm supposed to dress perfectly and work out every single day and be the best friend and best partner possible. And no one can do that. Those expectations are far too high. And they're also quite traditional in nature. And that's damaging to me. So I try actively to distance myself from those sorts of um, discourses. And that ability to sort of separate yourself, to point to places other than you as a source of, of uh, unrealistic expectations, I think was very powerful. And similarly, women in Sweden, Germany, and Italy could also think of very concrete suggestions for innovations for work family policy that they felt not only that they wanted, but that also that they deserved. And that was very different between the US and the European context. Mm, that's very, very interesting. And in your so you also mentioned this already, uh, you interviewed middle class uh, working women. Um, and I thought that was very interesting in the book where you explain uh, that They, they could be seen as kind of canaries in the mine. Um, if, mm -hmm. if they're kind of the front line and if they don't manage, if they're struggling, then we can only imagine the situation of low income or poor women, uh, you know, who are exactly. in low paid jobs or unemployed with no um, possibilities for, for childcare or any other support services. My question really would be, so, you know, there's this concept of lean in and, and, and get support and, and women who are working, they should be able to pay for a cleaning lady for, so, uh, they have the, the means to, to live a comfortable life, but even they are struggling, right? How, where do you see this, um, situated in a little bit? Is this really a, a luxury nowadays to afford the kind of quality childcare? I mean, 
perhaps in the U.S., to be able to have a fulfilling career and, and have all the help. Uh, it's, it feels a bit like this is out of reach, even for women who have very good jobs and, and have a very stable life otherwise. Exactly right. So so in the U.S., you know, the women that I were I was interviewing were certainly middle class. They were most of them were white, but not all of them. They were uh, highly educated. They were mostly in careers rather than just jobs. Um, and these were women who had the resources and the networks to be able to leverage to try and resolve their work family conflict in ways that low income women just don't have access to, right? We know that. Um, and we know that low-income folks are those who most need supportive work-family policies. Um, for example, uh, one person had suggested that my my study be one of single moms across the various countries because we know that they most benefit from these work-family policy supports. Um, so in fact, they are kind of the most sensitive to innovations in policy, which I thought was a fabulous idea for a study. Um, and similarly, you were just mentioning this pressure to, for example, have a perfectly clean home means that middle class folks to meet these expectations of what it means to be kind of a successful middle class family. If that means having a clean home and hiring a housekeeper, then my question becomes, who's taking care of that housekeeper's kids while they're while they're cleaning yours. Um, And in fact, in the Italian context, for example, where it's very common for women to outsource domestic work and, um, and caregiving for kids. um, It was so common that sometimes the women didn't even mention it when I said, what sort of strategies have you adopted to, to manage, you know, the stress that you feel. And in fact, sometimes we were, in a room where a housekeeper would be working and like mopping the floor around us. And she wouldn't even mention this person. <laughs> and I would have to say, so can you tell me about this woman who's <laughs> next to us? And in fact, this kind of invisibilizing of, of the labor necessary to keep households going is part of the problem. So yes, the study is one of middle-class women. Um, and I do think that they are canaries in a coal mine. Um, to be honest, I think the beauty of a podcast, we get to hear the background behind a book like this is that I wanted to interview women across the socioeconomic spectrum more broadly in the different countries. But I also came to the realization that, um, language barriers would be a problem in being able to access all these different women and women also who weren't able to speak in English with me, didn't have as much interest in participating in the study, which to me is totally logical. Um, And in fact, I would have needed to hire many translators, not just, for example, a German translator or an Italian translator. I'd have to find someone in Arabic and Turkish and whatnot. And um, I really think that that would be a fascinating study. I think I was the wrong person to conduct it. But um, I know that there are European scholars working on this exact area, um, but in, in their native languages, which I think is, of course, wonderful. And I think if we triangulate these studies um, amongst us researchers, we can get a rich and nuanced and more complete picture of what this is like for all sorts of families and not just middle class ones. Yes. And plus, I think that this way, the, the book is very comparable because you can, exactly. you can situate, you know, more or less, you know, what it means to be middle class, but mm-hmm. still see these incredible differences between Sweden or Germany and the U.S. is, I think, exactly. very, very striking and, and more powerful um, in a way. And and I think what really 
uh, I was quite surprised, um, you know, coming from you as a as a U.S. scholar, that you start <laughs> that you start the the interview chapters, the country chapters with Sweden, and it made that me surprised think, you made me think whether you wanted to you know put the gold standard first <laughs> to shock people, the readers into okay, so that that's where we start. You are exactly right. <laughs> that was a very deliberate decision, which was, you know, the whole point of the book is to try to show readers um, that an alternative world is possible. Mm. Um, we tend to think that this is just inevitable, and it's not inevitable. Things can look different, and certainly things are not perfect in Sweden. They they have their own series of difficulties that your European listeners are likely much more familiar with than, than American listeners are. Um, but the point is to show what could be possible. Um, and I organized the chapters in the book from women who kind of pr profess the most contentment, satisfaction about their work and family lives, and then move through the countries toward those who are more stressed um, and overwhelmed and exhausted and least satisfied. Um, and so it really draws, I hope, into stark comparison just how little we offer American families by way of work family policy supports um, and just, I think, how far we have to go. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, I mean, the European Union has been around now for uh, quite a long time and there's so many programs uh, to foster uh, exchange of good practice. Yep. But somehow I started recently to think of the Scandinavian countries as some kind of magic island onto themselves because, <laughs> and that's, I think, a little bit the challenge is for policy transfers or inspiring or, or, or transposing policies from one country to another because, you know, Italy and the Sweden have been in the EU, EU for a number of years together with a number of conferences and exchanges on very high political level to quite, you know, regular people's level <laughs> for through different projects, mm -hmm. yet, yet there hasn't been kind of Sweden's parental policy hasn't rubbed off on Italy or or other countries. Somehow it's when the country internally finds their own business case, coupled, I think, with a lot of transparency and accountability. Um, that that's when uh, that's when they start doing something about it and, and that's what we also Absolutely. see with, with companies. Uh, I know I know from Deloitte in the UK when they understood how many millions of pounds they're losing because women just exit the company at senior director's levels before they make partner and take all the knowledge, all the skills, all the network with them, that's when they said, okay, now we need to do something about it. Exactly right. That there, There's absolutely a, an, a business case and an economic case to be made for these policies. We already know that. It's very clear, right, that um, implementing more progressive and egalitarian policies, it's good for businesses and it's good for national economies. Um, what we lack oftentimes, in my mind, is the political will to pass those policies or to pay into a system that would benefit everyone or on an employer's level. It takes them understanding that they have to pay into, right, their, and invest in their workers in a way that will benefit them. But that's not instant gratification. No. <laughs> um, and I think that's difficult for countries. And, and I would love to be able to just make 
the moral or the ethical or the feminist case for these policies and, and say, look, they're the right thing to do. It should be as simple as that. But the reality is that's not enough to sway people's minds. And we have to change cultural attitudes about what we want and expect from from one another, from our partners, from organizations and the people who employ us and also from the government. And until we we change those cultural attitudes, I think we're going to see a real stubbornness to, and, uh, you know, an unwillingness to pass more progressive policies. Yes, and, and I really wonder, I mean, I'm following the the U.S. election, I think everyone, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yes. you know, following of, of what's, what's going to happen, who's going to be the Democratic uh, candidate uh, or nominee. And, and I just really am curious whether, how and, and in what form they will be able to make the case, because you would think that, that that's what will get you votes, right? Because you write this in the book, and I just totally agree that these issues are everyday dinner table conversations in every household, right? So what yeah. time do you finish work tomorrow? Okay, and who's going to pick up the kids? And then, so you're going to go and see your mom. And th these are, you know, everyday issues that are at really the forefront of our thinking as even voters, but also workers. So catering to that surely uh, would would bring a lot of benefit to whoever is going to be saying, yes, we need to now invest in this, just as it makes employers really attractive once they do it. Exactly. And, and part of what's frustrating in the U.S. context, at least, is that a lot of folks have run on campaigns where they promised to implement these policies, right? The last election was one where this happened in 2016, where um, both Secretary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump said that um, parental leave would be a cornerstone of their of their presidencies. And they both had it as a part of their campaign platforms. Um, Trump's was just for moms and um, Hillary Clinton's was for both men and for women. And so Trump was elected and we do not see the passage of maternity leave, paid maternity leave here in the U.S. Um, and so there's this disconnect between what what's promised on the part of policymakers and what actually ends up happening. And um, part of what I think the difficulty in the U.S. context is that we're so deeply individualistic. Um, this this idea that that, you know, my job is to take care of my family and your job is to take care of yours. And it's not my problem if you don't have enough money to you know, make it to the end of the month, you should have budgeted better, for example, is the sort of logic we hear here in the US a lot. And I think that perhaps that is different from a European context where more people understand that socializing things like healthcare, like education, and like childcare are beneficial to everyone, not just um, poor people, right? Not just parents, but everyone benefits when the next generation of workers, of taxpayers, and of citizens are, are raised in a, in a healthy and good environment. And um, the U.S. really, Americans have a very hard time getting behind the idea that they should pay into a system that benefits everyone. Mm. That was, I think that was a real highlight for me, actually, when you explained that in the book. Um, I haven't yet read it or thought about it quite that way. Well, thank you. That's kind of me to say that's my hope is like, I, I think I often think about, you know, trying to bring the messages that I learned from women in these European countries to Americans, but I also hope that it goes in the reverse. And I, I am heartened to hear that you say you got that out of it. I mean, even for us, I think that's very important because 
um, especially in the last crisis of austerity measures, mm -hmm. um, the first things that were cut, especially in southern European countries like Greece and Spain and Italy, was all the kind of policies and services that were to benefit working women, uh, like childcare and elder care. Yep. And simply the women here went on strike and the birth yeah. rates in Greece and Spain and Italy have never been this low. Um, so, so we see that, you know, we have these uh, policies, we have these services, but it doesn't mean that they can just be there forever. You know, there's always a risk yeah. that somebody will just decide to cut them. And, and so it's always good to see a little bit, you know, um, the flip side. What if we wouldn't have them? How, how that feels like. Yes, and it doesn't feel good. No. Um, that I can make clear. But I mean, think of, you know, the Italian context, for example, they've got a, a welfare system that does have very generous benefits for some workers, right? Um, for those on lifelong employment contracts or for older folks, for pensioners, for example. Um, and all of that is fine and good. But what it means is <laughs> if women can't figure out how to reconcile employment and motherhood, many of them will forego having children altogether. And we see, like we said, very low rates of fertility in these countries, which means the infrastructure of the economy it will crumble, right? This is not um, a maybe, this is a definite. And um, we know kind of instrumentally speaking, even if we put aside the moral or the feminist argument for these policies, it, they're necessary, right? And we can see Germany as one example of a country that underwent sweeping national changes in their social policies to resemble more closely the social democratic model because they were worried about, uh, you know, a skilled labor shortage, about fertility and about maternal and child poverty. And so we know, again, what policies look like that help increase rates of fertility and labor force participation. And um, I think it's a kind of a rocky road to see culture try and play catch up with those more progressive policies, but it's necessary, right? We, we know, and I think, um, in, in moving forward, it's not a mystery what needs to happen. It's just that we lack the political will in some places to make it happen. And, and I also think that there is a kind of a fear about time about, so in now when the European union has adopted this work-life balance directive, where you have uh, parental leave for fathers earmarked employers employer groups were very much against that and and you know all the people who were lobbying for this directive were saying yeah but it's not like all of your male employees will all of a sudden be gone for 12 months you know it's at the exact same time <laughs> yes it's 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 not going to cause business disruption <laughs> and exactly. we see that in germany between 2007 and 2017, when they introduced the parental leave for fathers, it only gradually increased to 30%. So still only a third of eligible fathers take it. And if they do, mm -hmm. the vast majority only takes up to two months and, and not 12 months. So really the lowest end. So as you say, the culture needs to catch up and employers need to be, you know, encouraging these men and also families, you know, must be saying to their sons or brothers or cousins, hey, you just had a kid. Why don't you take this precious time off and then return to work? So it's not, these policies take a long time, I think. They do take a long time and um, change can feel slow, but we can also look to places where this has already happened for 
evidence. So, you know, in Sweden, when they implemented kind of these use it or lose it months for dads and, you know, from 28, 2008 to 2016, they had the gender equality bonus in Sweden. And the results seem to be mixed about whether or not that actually incentivized men. But generally speaking, earmarking the days for men and giving it at a high wage replacement does encourage more men to take it. And I think there is a cultural shift involved here that, you know, several generations ago, it was far less likely that dads would take paid parental leave in, in Sweden. And, and today, it's sort of culturally expected that you would. And men there even told me that they would be frowned upon were they not to take leave. And it became culturally unacceptable to not be an equally involved parent. And that is major. And that shift happened virtually within a generation. And that, to me, is evidence that policy can play a role in helping bring about positive cultural change that's, again, um, in my mind, much more just. Yes. No, I, I totally agree. Um, and I'm so sad to say that time is running way too fast on this podcast because I could be <laughs> speaking to you about your work for, for much longer. Um, but before we go to the last question, uh, can I ask you, Katie, to share with the listeners where they can reach you and read more about your work and find the book and find other interviews and media uh, that have been published about the book? Sure. Thank you. Yeah, I have a, a website, CaitlinCollins.com. My first name is spelled C-A-I-T-L-Y-N, last name Collins, C-O-L-L-I-N-S, CaitlinCollins.com. And similarly, my Twitter handle is Caitlin M. Collins, M is in Mary, uh, Caitlin M. Collins. So feel free to find me on there. I'd love to connect with you. And the book um, can be found on Amazon UK, on uh, lots and lots of local websites for books as well. Um, if you type it into Google, it should pull up with local sellers all over the place. It's also an audio book if you'd prefer to listen to it rather than read it in hard copy. Um, it's an electronic book or an ebook as well if that interests you. And uh, I would love to hear the thoughts of your listeners should they end up reading it. Um, and my website has links to all sorts of other interviews and podcasts and articles that I've written um, on the topic as well. Wonderful. Thank you very much for, for sharing that. Now, coming to the last question, um, at the end of your book, you conclude by saying that, if anything, these stories make you angry. Um, and and, and I, I think that we can all feel this, you know, those of us working in this field trying to make progress we're impatient and we're frustrated and and angry about these injustices but i want to ask you do you also see a bit of hope for this to change i do i see a lot of hope um you know my my fairness monitor tendencies <laughs> i think come in here right is that um, we have examples of places that have implemented more progressive policies and where cultural attitudes have shifted to be more egalitarian. Um, I don't think that that's impossible. I think we have to be realistic in our goal setting. You know, here in the U.S., we have no paid parental leave whatsoever. Um, you know, just us and Papua New Guinea are the only two countries on the planet that don't have paid maternity leave. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable, right? And even in, in European countries, women are surprised when I say that out loud. They assumed that was it was better here than it is. Um, and the fact that we are seeing a groundswell of support in... For example, presidential campaigns um, for people to be thinking and talking about work family policy supports to me is really positive progress. So, for example, here in the U.S., um, leading up to the next presidential election, 
we have a ton of candidates who are working mothers and they're talking about their difficulties reconciling employment and motherhood as part of their message on the campaign trail. And a generation ago, no one would ever do that as a woman. You would never mention your family responsibilities because it would call into question how dedicated you were to the campaign or to the job. And that's not the case anymore. People are, again, talking very openly about the need for um, more just policies and also the role of men stepping in and and taking uh, a larger chunk of responsibility for caregiving. We see an upsurge of support in that for Uh, families across the Western industrialized world, it's becoming more acceptable, um, for example, for men to like carry their babies (laughs) on their chests, right? Like this is, it's, things are changing that never used to be culturally kind of acceptable. And today it's kind of seen as a mark of pride. Um, at least here in the U S we're seeing that a lot more amongst, um, highly educated middle-class fathers. And um, so I do see positive change. I think men are understanding that they've been missing out by not being involved in family life in the way women have. Um, I think people are realizing that families are struggling and that um, federal change needs to happen to pass more progressive policies. And so I think there's plenty of reason to be hopeful. What we need um, are for folks in positions of power to leverage their power to help get these policies passed. Because working moms, for example, are exhausted and they don't have time to call their legislators or run for office um, or lobby their managers to pass more progressive policies. What we need, for example, are men to work as advocates for women, for those who don't have children to advocate for more flexible policies in the workplace. We need collective support and that needs to come from all different angles, not from those who are just most affected by the lack of policy supports. Mm. Thank you so much. I mean, I really think you have summed it up really really perfectly uh where we are now and and you know what kind of what what is it that that we need to do uh moving forward so congratulations again on your book and and on your research and i really wish you all the best and that many many people read the book and that they can not sleep afterwards until they do something (laughs) about it Thank you. That's so kind of you to say, Agnes. It's such a, a pleasure to speak with you. And um, and by all means, your listeners should feel welcome to reach out to me too. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't hesitate to go on uh, theworklifehub.com forward slash podcasts and listen to some others. And also letting you know that uh, we have a book that came out at the end of 2018, which is called One Life, How the Most Forward-Looking Organizations Leverage Work-Life Integration to attract talent and foster employee well-being and in that book we bring you lots of case studies about these progressive family-friendly employers who are really making a change to their employees and how they do that there's tons of information in there and really inspirational stories as well so if you go worklifehub.com forward slash book then you will find all of uh, all the information necessary thank you for listening <laughs>